When you stretch and stretch the definition of racism to include, you know, criticizing immigration, criticizing crime, criti you know, and even capitalism, you know, any of these things that, that the radical progressives are trying to do, what that does is it shuts down debate after debate after debate, and, and also it fuels, what it does is it then means the mainstream actors and parties and institutions can't touch these issues, so only... Yep populist entrepreneurs can touch them. And so, so actually what they're doing is they are creating the market for populism. <laughs> Left modernism, what it does is it goes from you must tolerate diversity, which I think you, we all must tolerate diversity to be in a liberal society, to you must prefer diversity over less diversity. And that, that suddenly you're, you're dictating taste. Uh, I'm here today with Eric Kaufman, who is a professor of politics at Birkbeck and also the author of a number of books, most recently, White Shift, Populism, Immigration and the Future of White Majorities, which is a really interesting book. I was actually just reading it earlier. Um, he's also just a very interesting guy in general. So it's great to have you on. Thanks for, thanks for joining me. Great to be here, Max. So can you give me a breakdown of kind of the main thesis of White Shift and what the main points you're trying to make in that book are? Yeah, so the... Basically, white shift has two meanings. One is the decline in, in white majority share in Western countries over the course of this century, uh, which is, is in some cases quite dramatic. So I, I use the example of my country, Canada, where in 2006, the, the census recorded about 80% of European origin, 20% non-European. And by the end of the century, it's calculating roughly that those proportions would be reversed if in the 80% non-European, we include people of mixed race background. Now, of course, that's a tricky, tricky area, but um, that sort of shows you the speed of change in some countries. In the United States, Canada, New Zealand will all be kind of majority minority, so to speak, if we include Hispanics as, as part of the minority population by around 2050. And then the main immigrant receiving West European countries, it'll be end of the century. So Britain will be one of those. And that's a pretty dramatic shift, um, given that this, these were all relatively, particularly the European countries, were relatively ethnically homogenous yeah. in, the, in, the, in the recent past. So I'm arguing that really is going to radically change our politics, and we're already seeing it. This is really the first intimations of that shift where cultural issues, issues around ethnocultural change and, and, and so forth are going to become... Um, more prominent in politics and in determining who votes for whom and the economic left-right dimension is going to become less prominent. And you can already see that even in, if you just take Britain, if you take a number of different countries, you look at the class composition of the, today's conservative voters and the, the labor voters of today, they're almost identical. Uh, you will go back to 1950 and it would have been a radically different, you know, the, the Tories would have been a had a middle-class vote and, the, and labor a largely working-class vote. So it just shows you the class economic type issues becoming less important. Um, and populism really is very much a response to, I would argue, uh, this ethnic change which immigration symbolizes in a dramatic way. And that's why immigration is the key to understanding right-wing populism, not left-wing populism a la Syriza or Podemos, but, but right-wing populist parties, which are the more successful ones, generally. 
Um, so that's white shift 1.0, if you like, and then there's white shift 2.0, which is the longer term view on the way I see this kind of playing out uh, is that ethnic majorities are going to, the meaning of white in a, in a, in a certain sense is going to transform to be not uh, a sort of racially exclusive thing, but a sort of beijing, to use Michael Lynn's term, yeah. through uh, interracial marriage and absorption into a kind of uh, mixed race majority. So that's going to happen not in our lifetimes, but it'll happen very quickly after about 2100. So in Britain, for example, where we've done some projections based on current patterns of, of interracial marriage, uh, it's sort of something like only 7% of the population is mixed race in 2050. Yeah. So the effect won't be seen by then, but it's 30% by the end of the century, 75% 50 years later. So, so it's kind of a something that'll happen next century, but my argument is that that mixed race population will uh, largely connect back to the uh, myths of, of origin and traditions of the existing white majority population. Okay, so something else you've spoken about is the kind of almost religious aspect of the left, what you call the left modernist worldview. That's something I'm really interested in because I wouldn't, I don't think I'm necessarily ideologically committed to any position actually at the moment. I used to be super left wing way back in the day and then I kind of realized there are lots of things I thought didn't make sense about that. Um, but something which I often get pulled up on by people who are on the left or of kind of a liberal perspective is they say that I'm obsessed with criticizing and a lot of other people like me are obsessed <laughs> with focusing on kind of this particular left worldview and their argument is oh but there are lots of right-wing media papers which are actually really influential and they're much more influential or as influential as the left so why are you focusing on that so much um to which I think you give quite a good reply which is basically that they've actually just got so much cultural dominance if you see what I mean and that's right. having a great impact on how we're able to operate politically as a society and societal discourse more generally so I guess if you could kind of break that down a bit yeah. and go into more detail about that. Well, yeah, so I think that, that's right, that really the left is in the elite institutions, academia, the media, uh, not the right-wing media, but the sort of much of the mainstream media, it depends on the country, uh, and, and certainly in courts, uh, in, in you know parts of major corporations, Hollywood, et cetera. So you have a very powerful... Um, cultural narrative that is is progressive left. Now, what what I mean when I say progressive left, it's really this term left modernism, which is it's not communism. Really, that's that's actually a, a misnomer. I think. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it's something quite different from socialism. What this is really is the anti-communist left tradition, and it stems from a kind of bohemian, uh, what's known as the lyrical left, which goes back really to even to. Um, you know, kind of an anarchism. Anarch it's a blend of anarchist individualism and uh, the cultural, a cultural form of, of socialism or the left. Yeah. That really comes into its own, it exists through the 19th century and through the 20th century in a sort of rarefied elite circles like the young intellectuals in Greenwich Village in America, which is really where a lot of these ideas of uh, multiculturalism, anti-whiteness and all of these things begin in the early 20th century. Uh, partly as a revolt against Protestant prohibition of alcohol and, and a whole bunch of things associated with Protestantism in the early 20th century. But then that really explodes in the 1960s and fuses with this kind of cultural 
form of socialism. Uh, and you can see that developing just prior to, to World War II amongst a group of uh, what are called the New York intellectuals. And they, their critique is very much, yeah, we're with capitalism, but uh, we're very anti-fascist. And by the way, we're going to define fascism really broadly. So someone who wants to do traditional landscape art, we're going to call them a fascist. Yeah. That's happening in the late 30s. Now, you could kind of argue, you know, you could sort of see the logic in the sense that there was a real threat, you know, yeah. <laughs> from, from something real. So you can you can excuse a certain amount of paranoia. But the thing is that then continues uh, and, and, and mushrooms in the 60s when you get the rise of the university system and the television system. And, and that really increases the scale yeah. of these beliefs. And then they get progressively institutionalized and, and developed in different ways. And that's kind of what we're, we're living through. It's not been remarked upon enough, but we're at the high point of 100 years of historical development of this kind of anti-communist left ideology. I wouldn't call it, I mean, its origins are anti-communist left, but it can be adapted to communism as well as to capitalism. And so yeah. that's why you see both the, you know, corporate, uh, you know, what's called progressive neoliberalism, this sort of woke corporation, bohemian bourgeois phenomenon, but then also you have it on on the socialist left. You, know, you have people who are communist, socialist, but also buy into this yeah. uh, progressivism as well. So can you break down some of the key kind of central tenets of that progressivism? Because I've got some good quotes from you here about how, um, you know, for example, you say the liberal conceit that whites must be post-ethnic cosmopolitans who value diversity above all else is unlikely to survive this populist moment, um, which to me seems, if you say, I mean, the conceit that whites must be post-ethnic cosmopolitans who value diversity above all else, I guess, is one of the central tenets of that yes. worldview. So can you kind of break down what you mean? Yeah, so, so there's really kind of three parts to this world, three layers. The first is, is, is a liberal idea, which is uh, cross-border liberalism, which is cosmopolitanism. That goes back, that's probably the first layer, and that goes back well before, even before uh, the 20th century. And then you have layered on top of that, this anti Anti your own tradition, anti whiteness, anti Protestantism, which is what Daniel Bell, the sociologist, uh, called the adversary culture. And yeah. that's kind of behind the bohemian modernism of the early 20th century, sort of starting strongly just prior to World War II, or World War I, sorry. Um, and this is in the United States, the young intellectuals, this is where the idea of uh, being against your own culture, a lot of these young intellectuals were Anglo Protestant. New England background, Americans who revolted against their own culture, calling it boring, not very expressive, yeah. restrictive, and so on, and that the other cultures were much more interesting, whether it be African-American jazz or uh, Jews who brought a, a different intellectual culture or uh, Greeks and, and groups that like to con have conviviality. These were much more interesting. So then you then get this development of an ideology that says, um, you know, Anglo-Protestants, you should drop your culture and embrace cosmopolitanism. Other ethnic groups, no, you can't assimilate. You must maintain your attachment to your grandfathers and to your culture. And that, that was yeah. Randolph Bourne's idea. And I think that's largely the template then that, that we're living with. So members of ethnic majority groups should spurn and, you know, all absolutely don't identify as as member of a white majority. That's terrible. Uh, but you know, what you want to do is be a cosmopolitan. And then for ethnic minorities, no, you must hang on to your 
identity and identity politics and so on. And so that contradiction really in, in multiculturalism really has a long history, but it's a, a reached a full flower now. Um, yeah. And then there's a third element, which is this kind of um, cultural transposition of, of Marxism. So instead of uh, the oppressed group being the proletariat who are going to bring forth the uh, worker state, it's, it's, you know, people of color sort of at the top. And then you have sexual and gender minorities who have, I think, a little bit lower standing on the totem pole, but still are part of this, um, this movement. And it's these cultural marginalized groups who are going to bring, who are the oppressed, who are going to bring forth this new multicultural utopia. I think that's kind of the the same template, but it's been, and, and, and the template, of course, comes from Christianity, and it's been adapted to these cultural groups. Yeah, okay, because so I, I, so what I really liked about uh, your work is that you've pinpointed what I think is one of the central problems with that world you, at the moment is, how, is the, basically the religious aspect of it. Not in the sense that it's actually religious. They don't believe in a, a god of multiculturalism or anything, but they basically have the same approach to issues, which is there's just a set way of viewing things which everything must be fitted within. It doesn't react to changing world and historical circumstances. It's just, this is what I believe in. I believe that diversity is the absolute end goal of everything. So anything which contradicts that or anything which suggests that even if diversity is great, which I personally think is something I'm kind of generally in favor of, I'm completely open to the fact that there might also be attendant problems which come with it. Whereas a lot of what's happened in recent years seems to me to be just a shutting down of the idea that any criticism or any problems should even be discussed really because it's just an end in itself rather than something which is a benefit in some ways, but also has other issues which you should talk about. And so I think in recent years, that seems to have become much more pronounced, that kind of religious aspect. So say yes. 20, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, um, loads of those things about trying to celebrate other cultures and, uh, and the diversity in the community and stuff, I think would be really important, especially when there was racism around and stuff. It's really important to do that. But as we've got to the point recently with social media and stuff um, being so prominent, we've reached a position where it's kind of, almost un you must celebrate everything right. to do with anything which is critical of the West and Western culture and British culture. And you have to be completely uncritical of all other cultural aspects of everything else. And it becomes that kind of religious approach, which I think is problematic. What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that John McWhorter, you, you may have heard of uh, the African-American uh, linguist who has this concept called the religion of anti-racism yeah which you know it's an excellent piece i think it came out a few years ago where he really nailed it i think very well that that, that this is something that is a white progressive thing where the, the white progressives really want to expiate their original sin of being white and they want to be told that they are are awful but they can be an ally and sort of gain a, a certain amount of redemption so it's very kind of religious model to this right this idea that you can you not the bad whites but but you an enlightened white can be an ally and therefore gain a certain amount of redemption from your original sin and so yeah. it has that's what mcwarder's point really was um and so the key i think to to all of these religious outlooks is as our sacred values things that can't be questioned diversity obviously is the key one you know you could never have too much of it so so i i talk about it the idea of an optimal amount of diversity. Uh, you know, I, I would think there is an optimal amount that too much actually has causes problems and too little causes problems. Now that would be heretical because 
diversity is an end in itself. It isn't a sacred value. Same with this idea that all major, you know, all cultural groups, particularly the race, gender, uh, sexuality ones, must have equal outcomes on anything that matters, such as income, at least an equal outcome or, or better than the majority group. It's simply inexcusable to imagine that um, an ethnic group like Latinos could have a lower income or a lower wealth than whites. That must mean be proof of oppression and discrimination. Whereas one would never say, for example, that if Londoners have a higher average income than people in the northeast of England, that that is proof of uh, systemic discrimination. Or, or, for example, that people with even somebody from a, a, a better educated background having more income than a lower educated background, that, that that's proof of some kind of systemic discrimination or, or Jews having more average income than, I don't know, Jehovah's Witnesses, right? So, so there's only yeah. certain categories that people care about. And typically those are going to be uh, the race, sex, gender, holy trinity, if you like. Yeah. Um, so the key is this very much sacralization. And that's a choice. So it used to be that the proletariat was sacralized and now it's marginalized, you know, racial and gender and sex groups. Yeah. That's the sort of switch we've seen. You could equally imagine a world where it would be uh, disabled people or it would be left-handed people or people who were, you know, born as second or third order children who we know on average do less well than people who are the firstborn. But, you know, we don't have that. We have instead chosen these other categories. Um, so yeah, you know, this, this was, uh, I, I was saying with diversity, the key here, I think, is this idea of uh, Isaiah Berlin, the uh, English uh, political theorist who argues there's a distinction between what he called negative liberty and positive liberty. Uh, the one that I hold to is the negative liberty, which says um, people have their, their rights and freedoms, um, so long as you don't sort of impede somebody else's liberties, you have your own Liberty. So we all have to tolerate, I think, diversity. And that's where I would be on board would, would be a kind of diversity, toleration, equal rights. Uh, you know, that that is the kind of liberalism that I subscribe to. But the um, left modernism, what it does is it goes from you must tolerate diversity, which I think you, we all must tolerate diversity to be in a liberal society, to you must prefer diversity over less diversity. And that that suddenly you're you're dictating taste, yeah. You know, because actually, it's a taste, and it's actually whether you prefer more or less uh, diversity is very psychological. And, and in fact, psychological experiments have shown this is about fifty percent uh, genetic. Actually, your your preference for these sorts of things, and so actually, what this represents is in fact a kind of tyrannical enforcement of particular um, value, sacred value on the population. Instead yeah. of saying some people may prefer more, some people may prefer less, we have to reach an accommodation. Yeah, that definitely makes sense to me. I mean, so one of the other points, I mean, this is kind of similar to my point a few <laughs> seconds ago, but definitely what I think in terms of your point about the three values of kind of race, sex, gender, and so on, or, you know, that kind of focus of those things being particularly key and any questioning of, of diversity at all being out of the question. What stands out to me as weird at the moment is that I'm in favour of those things. I think I assume you probably are as well, as in, I don't know, but I'm assuming you might be in favour of no racism in right. general society or 
fem- mm-hmm. I, I would basically consider myself myself someone who is in favor of everyone from every background having no disadvantages and not being treated in a bigoted way by anyone. So that's one of the values I hold really core. Um, but I think the problem with what the left is doing recently, and I guess what you're saying left modernists are doing, is they've taken it a step beyond that, beyond thinking that those things are really important, which a large, large percentage of people do, and into thinking that any criticism of a particular left modern standpoint on any of those issues is as bad as actual racism itself or actual sexism, which is a massive illogical jump. So, for example, um, I could be in favour of having a large amount of immigration to society, but then also think, oh, but one of the things we're going to have to deal with with immigration is there might be certain issues to do with, let's say, crime in certain immigrant communities, which might happen in the short term for a whole host of reasons, which often tends to happen in different societies. It's worth discussing this, and it's something we need to try and deal with in order to achieve the diversity which we want. And the left modernist view on that would basically be, oh, no, the only reason there would be any crime in these communities at all would be basically down to the um, the way in which we as a society are behaving and bigotry in our society. It's just not a rational way of explaining something very complicated, the whole host of different explanations which need to be taken into consideration. And so I think it's that disconnect which a lot of people are really reacting against. Like, what do you think in terms of that approach? Yeah, I think that, yeah, I, I, you, you put your finger on, on it, which is that, you know, everyone's in favour of you know, anti-racism, let's say. Um, but the problem becomes, it gets down to definitions. So what the left modernists have done is they've weaponized the definition of these terms, much like George Orwell says in 1984 with this idea of, of newspeak, where you the definition of terms becomes politically driven and not scientifically driven, right? Yeah. So, so a term like racism becomes prejudice plus power, which from a social science point of view, makes absolutely no sense at all. Yeah. Because someone could have be really high on prejudice and really low on power and have the same score as someone who's really high on power and really low on prejudice. And that's yeah. supposed to mean the same thing. So, so it makes no sense, but the politicization of these definitions means that all of a sudden, if you're reading, let's say, from a 19th century text that uses the N-word in a classroom, that's the same as using the N-word to somebody's face. You know, so, so this kind of expansion of the meaning or wearing a, a sombrero is the same thing as, as altering a racial slur. So it's this kind yeah. of moral entrepreneurialism of the radicals who are, because this is a sacred value, the more you can invoke it, yeah. the more kudos you get in this religion. Uh, it's a bit like seeing signs of the devil everywhere, right? So it's yeah. kind of a, uh, a technique that sort of works for these moral innovators. And so they yeah. ratcheted up and ratcheted up this, uh, this this idea. And it's quite absurd because you see a term like, so another, where you see this a lot is is policing of language and yeah. using the term, you know, I, re- I gave a talk in, the, in, a, in a liberal arts college in the U.S. and got r- r- hauled over the coals by this sort of progressive for using the term Hispanic, right? <laughs> Which yeah. I guess is not politically correct. The term is Latinx or something. And then they did a survey that only... Two percent of Latinos actually identify with the term Latinx. So right. Yeah. It's a concoction of white liberals, basically, who yeah. are trying to invent new rules and stretch and stretch and stretch the definition of these terms. Of course, what that does is when you when you stretch and stretch the definition of racism to include, you know, criticizing immigration, criticizing crime, criti- you know, and even capitalism. You know, any of these things that that the radical progressives are trying to do, what that does is it shuts down 
debate after debate after debate, and, and yeah. also it fuels, what it does is it then means the mainstream actors and parties and institutions can't touch these issues, so only yeah. populist entrepreneurs can touch them. And so, so actually what they're doing is they are creating the market for populism. Oh, yeah, that's such an interesting point. Yeah, I completely yeah. agree with that. To what extent would you say things like the Brexit and the Trump vote are a response to that phenomenon? Because I've yeah. heard a lot of people say that the Brexit and the Trump vote can basically be explained as a result of economic factors like the left behind people in the North or the Rust Belt in America. And it's all basically put down, a lot of it is put down to economics, especially by liberal left type people right. who don't agree with Brexit and Trump. And I just think from a kind of neutral perspective, that probably is a factor, but it doesn't strike me as what's the likely main factor. So what's your view on that? And in particular, what in what way does that a backlash against that PC um, kind of shutting of the Overton window relate to those people's voting habits? If, if you yeah, that's a, that's a really important set of questions. I mean, the first one about economics versus culture or psychology. I mean, I think the even you know in academia now, I think there's a recognition that the data is so strong. The survey data is so so clearly showing that economic factors, particularly the material ones around personal income, job loss, class, hardly matters at all. I mean, yeah. really hard, certainly for the Trump vote. On the Brexit vote, it mattered a little bit. Poorer people, yes, were more likely to vote leave, but it's a relatively small effect. Okay. The, the overwhelmingly massive effects are around you know, opinions on immigration, for example, even opinions on the death penalty, yeah. agreement with a statement like things in Britain were better in the past. You know, Those are the these sorts of things which... When you break it down, it's uh, British culture was better in the past is really what explains it, not the British economy was better in the past. So yeah. <laughs> this is a very much a, a almost, I won't say exclusively, but heavily cultural phenomenon. However, there's a distinction to be made between uh, immigration as an issue and the anti-political correctness. Yeah. Anti-political correctness, direct hostility to political correctness is a much bigger factor in the Trump vote than in any of the European populist votes, including the Brexit one. Okay. Simply because that issue is, is a much more live, politicized issue in America. Uh, yeah. And so just in some small, small-scale um, survey experiments that I've done, it, that definitely comes out more clearly, that the immigration issue was very central to the Brexit vote. Yeah. It was also the most important thing for the Trump vote, and particularly the Trump primary, uh, him winning the, the Republican primaries, but second to that was hostility to political correctness. And there's been a couple of studies um, where, for example, if you talk about Trump and then you call him a racist, or you talk about an issue like taking down Confederate flags off state capitol buildings, and then you say, because it's racist, if you use the racist wording as opposed to because it's not a good idea for these reasons, you know, yeah. the racist wording triggers a negative response. Yeah. And so this and and so there are a number of experiments here that show, um, and there's another one more on directly on political correctness that there, you use those wordings, you talk about you're not saying things because they're offensive, and you actually get a, an increase in support for Trump. Yeah. So I think it's very clear in the U.S. case that happened. Um, it's in it's less clear, I think, in the Brexit case. But what I think is occurring is a, a kind of indirect effect of political correctness in, say, Britain, where if it's not possible, I mean, Britain's not the best case, but Sweden might be a better case where 
it really wasn't possible to talk about reducing immigration numbers. It was so taboo and so toxic that the mainstream parties were simply just trussed up like turkeys. So that left this vast market uh, to be exploited. It's a bit like if you are in the Soviet Union and you can, and then they say we're supplying one color of pants in the government-run department store, and the population wants five five types of pants. Well, who's going to supply what the public wants? It's going to be a black marketeer who will set up shop somewhere, and that's what yeah. the populists are. They are the black marketeers. The only reason they're in business is because the mainstream was unable to address what they wanted addressed. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, if we're looking for the mechanism, say in Europe or in Britain, it's very much that. Now it's true for Trump as well. None of the other primary candidates of the other 17 primary candidates were willing to campaign forcefully on immigration as a central theme. Yeah. Trump really broke taboos by doing that and he therefore reaped the rewards, the electoral rewards. And, yeah. and again, that wouldn't have been possible if the other candidates were talking about this issue. Yeah. And so the way this political correctness works, which is more powerful, it's not so much the antics on campus, but it's these subtle restrictions and taboos operating in different levels of society, yeah. which opens up the marketplace really for populism. But so even on, yeah, I completely, I think that's been my instinct the entire time. Um, but one, something which just a very, very specific kind of a niche annoying point is that I, I use the term political correctness and then you used it throughout that. But right. I think that there's a slight problem with using that term to refer to what people are reacting against and what the left or the left modernists are doing, because Political correctness in itself is basically just an attempt. I guess you could say I would basically be in favor of that. I think it's just a way of trying to treat people in the most civil, polite way you can. It's got kind of a good thrust behind it historically. But in recent times, it's become it's not a matter of being politically correct. It's a matter of enforcing that left modernist worldview. And there's like a subtle difference. So, for example, even on something like the Trump vote, if you say if you say that everything Trump does is racist, that's not political correctness. That's basically just analyzing Trump through a particular left modernist lens and then putting all his policies pretty much into one basket, which is racist, and then dismissing the whole thing as racist, which actually means that if he does do something which is slightly racist, which every so often he does, if you've called building the wall racist constantly, when it's not necessarily a racist thing to do, it might be something you disagree with, but it's not necessarily racist. Right. You then are applying the same terminology to something he says, which actually is racist. So that's not a matter of political correctness. It's a matter of just incorrectly throwing around the term racist, if you see what I mean. That, uh, yeah. that was but that gets back to that point about what the psychologists call concept creep, the expansion of the meaning of racism, right, to include the wall, to include, you know, anything that might be deemed as offensive because and, and that's why I do think political correctness is the useful term in the sense that this is really about sensitivity to feelings. So once you accept the principle of you need to be sent, you know, I agree with you obviously that there is a, a degree of civility that one needs to maintain. But it's like a dial. It's it's where how how much do you turn that dial up, right? Yeah. On sensitivity. And who are you going to be sensitive to? what you would consider a reasonable member of a minority group or the most sensitive member imaginable of a minority group, let's say, and typically as interpreted by a white liberal or a white yeah. progressive. So they're going to invent a hypothetical 
ultra sensitive minority person as yeah. the person you've got to satisfy in order to be allowed to say something, right? So, so this is all about the dial and how high you turn it up. Yeah, um, yeah. You obviously don't want to go about go around offending people who are reasonable uh, to their face. You know, that's yeah. that's you know saying your group has higher crime. You know, it's simply not not something that's civil to do. But on the other hand. To be able to not to, to not be able to criticize or to talk about lowering immigration levels for fear you're going to hurt the feelings of a really sensitive member of a minority is unreasonable in my view. Yeah. So what what political and actually it's important to note that this political correctness has existed for longer. This is not just a post 2014 2015 thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, this goes back to the 1960s even, and and you know you can see it certainly ramping up in the 70s in certain ways. So this is actually a long-term issue of where you, you know, where, where is the dial going to be set? And in the institutions, it's typically turned up way too far. So we have a kind of funny situation where, so I do think political correctness is the right term. And I think, yes, it's gone crazy on campus, for example, but even in institutions that are quite far from the campus, like co- corporations and government and so on, the sensitivity level, in my view, is probably up too high, and this is leading to a lot of the problems. Um, okay. So, yeah. so, just so, so one final point on this. So I, I agree with that analysis, but then at the same time, um, you could say something, I guess to make my point more specifically, let's say something like the Black Lives Matter narrative. It's basically reached a point where saying you disagree with the Black Lives, the particular Black Lives Matter analysis of society Right. It's deemed far right. That's what I mean by there's a slight difference between that and political correctness. Political correctness might be something, so me and you might not disagree on this, but political correctness might be something like trying to behave as politely as you possibly can towards the most sensitive member of a group. And me and you may disagree on whether that's something which is worth it. I would try, to, I would tend to try to do that, but I can see why people find it hypocritical, let's say, if, if the left then goes on to use overtly racist terms against individuals who are from an ethnic group who they disagree with, which makes me think that that isn't really political correctness, it's more of a political thing. But either way, on the Black Lives Matter thing, it's like, let's say that you don't agree with the Black Lives Matter analysis of what's going on in American society. That isn't, it doesn't matter whether or not you agree with it or not, but saying that disagreeing with that means you are racist is just, it's not a matter of political correctness, it's a matter of just imposing a, a misleading definition of racism which suits that left-wing group, if you see what I mean. Right. Um, so I guess another question would be, where do you think this populist movement is headed? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I mean, it might not be possible right. to analyze in terms of good or bad, but just kind of what is your prediction and where do you think it's headed? And do you think it's kind of a necessary correction or is, is it going too far? What's your approach, you know, in general to what's going on? Um, well, let's think. I, I think where's it headed is that these issues, I think, are going to be with us now indefinitely. I mean, clearly something like COVID or, uh, you know, something major like COVID is going to distract and will clearly knock this issue down. That's why yeah. I think COVID will actually reduce the potency of the populist right yeah. until the economy and everything's back to normal. Uh, and that's an illustration of the kind of process um, that's occurred. So, for example, when the economic crisis of 2007-8 was in full swing, actually, despite what people say, 
that didn't give any boost at all to the populist right. It probably yeah. weakened it. Okay. And it's really as as people stopped worrying about the economy, immigration started rising up yeah. as an issue. Um, now, because societies are only going to get more diverse, ethnic majorities are only going to decline. My prediction would be that this issue is only going to become more, not less important until we grapple with it. Okay. So the current dispensation of trying to silence, I think it's just going to lead to polarization. Yeah. And now the question is, who captures that populism? Is it going to be an outsider party like UKIP or an insider party like the Republican Party in the U.S.? And that yeah. just depends on how flexibly these parties are willing to break taboos. What yeah. I think has happened is in Europe, a lot of the parties have been willing to break the right parties in particular, and some left parties have been willing to, to break taboos and say, no, we're going to talk about immigration. Yeah. We're going to talk about assimilation. Not so much assimilation, but they have actually started addressing these issues. So it could be that the center right is the main beneficiary if they're able to, and as increasingly they are able to overcome some of these taboos. Yeah. So I see that this populism could be channeled more through center-right parties in the future. Like okay. the conservatives are an example here, although they're not as populist right as, let's say, the Republican Party. Yeah. Um, and sorry, what was the second part of your question? Um, this, the future. Oh, the, where this where this populist movement? Um, oh yeah, where we're headed. Go. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that it, it's it's structural to because of the ethnic demography. This is just going to generate. Conflicts. Now, what's important is I actually don't think this is so much of a, a conflict between majority and minority. I mean, it's yeah. partially that, but it's much more a, um, a conflict within the ethnic majority between white liberals who are a minority and uh, the more conservative part of the population, which is the majority within the white population. So in the U.S., for example, yeah. all of the biggest gaps in opinions uh, on immigration, on diversity. This is between white Trump voters and white liberals. Yeah. With minorities often in the middle, actually, on a yeah. lot of these issues. So it's much more about, it creates a real struggle between these people who are very left modernist and who want to, who believe that you can't think anything else or you're a terrible racist. And then the rest of the population, some of whom are quite attached to the ethnic composition of the country they grew up in and so on, and resent being called racist, and so you're, you're getting an increasing ratcheting of that. So I would say that polarization on cultural lines, that yeah. becomes the major electoral cleavage. I think that's going to be with us now. Uh, I have a hard time seeing that go away yeah. I, under the current dispensation, unless the left is to, you know, if the left reforms itself and comes to a different understanding. Now, there's no question that the populace, I do think there are problems with the populist right, I, you know, there are extremists in these groups. There often is an anti-expert bias in some quarters, yeah. um, a preference for simple solutions which are not particularly well thought out. And, and there can sometimes be individuals who, are, who say things that are nasty to minorities, which I very much oppose. And, and I would include Trump talking about Mexicans and implying they're racist, uh, rapists. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so this is... This is you know, there are definitely negative possibilities, and I don't think Western countries are going to go down the backsliding on democracy route, but I do yeah. think there could be problems just in terms of having sensible, rational policies uh, and, and to some degree not uh, protecting the rights or, or at least 
symbolically protecting the um, the standing of minorities. So I think there are problems, certainly. But I think also you have to see that that part of the issue was that the existing elite was not bringing these concerns to the table. So they were keeping these issues uh, issues around immigration and, and national identity off the table, or were only talking about them in the terms they wanted to, to talk them to yeah, them about. And so you needed an outside force really to bring those concerns, intrude into the conversation and actually bring these concerns onto the table. And I think in that sense, populism serves the role of bringing neglected issues in, into democracy and strengthening democracy. But of course, there is a risk, and, and, and we can't play that, that at this, if, if the mainstream parties who are responsible and, and more rational and so on are not taking on these issues, then they do invite the rise of parties who will take on these issues, who may be less disciplined, who may be less reasonable in terms of their policy. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's not a clear cut one or the other, but I think that's part of the reason why I would advocate um, lowering where it makes sense not having these taboos. There, you know, sometimes you need a taboo. I, yeah. I, so, yeah, no, I was just saying, sometimes you do need a taboo, uh, where, again, it's in line with negative liberalism. So yeah. George Wallace, the uh, American populist who got 13% of the vote in 1968 um, on a platform of segregation, and, you know, clearly you can't have uh, segregation, which, which is not guaranteeing the civil rights of African Americans. Yeah. Um, so in the, the main parties were right to freeze Wallace out and not to have any truck with his ideas. Yeah. That's a very different thing to something like immigration, where this is not a civil rights issue, despite what the modernist left will try. They'll try and make it a civil rights, human rights issue whenever you talk about it. But in fact, it's not. Yeah. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, something like asylum seekers at the U.S. border is also not a straightforward issue the way that the progressives would, would have you believe. Yeah. There are deep, deep problems with a whole series of court rulings that have developed in the U.S., which essentially allow for people to come in, make an asylum claim, and disappear. Yeah. And that really, by trying to make it really difficult to stop that, they almost forced the Trump administration into taking quite draconian policy steps because they were actually handcuffed by a, a whole series of judicial rulings, such as you're not allowed to hold a family together for more than 20 days. Yeah. Right. So you have to split the children. Off. I mean, that was actually because of a, a liberal ruling, which was engineered in a way to tie the hands of the authorities and force them to release whole families into the. You know, so I just think this the kind of nuance around this is missing. It's impossible yeah. to have a, a rational conversation when there are all these taboos in place. That's definitely true. I definitely think that I really I think a possible issue going forward is that the left will be well, not the left, but just liberal left mainstream types in general will be important for criticizing or critiquing where rightist populism could lead which is obviously an important thing they've got yeah. to be able to do it but at the same time they there are so many issues in terms of the way that the liberals and left were governing things prior to this which actually were not even from a left-right perspective but actually just kind of really screwing over some groups who they claim to be protecting like the african-american community in america for example or immigrant communities across the west actually in many ways were arguably suffering as a result of the policies which those administrations and governments and their cheerleaders and so on were supporting completely uncritically. Um, that it's quite difficult for those people to make a criticism of the right, which doesn't just seem kind of almost hypocritical or 
purely ideological rather than rational. So I think that actually could potentially be an issue because I, I, I have a feeling that a lot of this stuff isn't actually as right wing as it's held up to be. I think in many ways, it's just a necessary correction to things which weren't being discussed. But at the same time, there are potentially bad elements which could arise as a result of that movement. Um, and they need to be checked. And I'm not sure that the left at the moment is able to do that in a way which connects with very many people as all. Well. No, no, I think this is a real problem that, that, that the, you know, because the left modernists have weaponized taboos, which is very effective because it takes areas out of the realm of democratic contestation by sticking them outside the Upperton window. You can win simply by freezing out an idea, but... They can't anymore, though, I don't think. I, I think the problem there is all you're doing is creating a marketplace for populism, right? Yeah. Um, so now, of course, what we see is that the liberal left... Uh, or the you know the rational left, let's call them, who are a significant group, are unable, seem unable to be able to challenge the the kind of woke uh, religious left, if you like, um, on some of these taboos. That and partly I think it's that they themselves don't have a clear critique of these taboos. I mean, they yeah. know there's something wrong when you're shutting down free speech and you can't have a rational conversation. Yeah. Uh, and, and certainly there are people like Mark Lilla and others. But of course, as soon as they or Jonathan Haidt, but of course, even if they say, look, I vote for the Democrats, they're immediately accused of being right wing stooges. And they don't really there just isn't a sort of institutional architecture or set of norms to protect themselves and protect them from these attacks. And this is where I think what we need is this broader discussion around what norms and taboos really are and actually how should they be set. It's kind of like a wild west. Whoever gets hold of the tiller yeah. can more or less run with this and ratchet up these taboos and weaponize them and bend them any way they want. And so it's understanding the sort of manipulation that goes on there and how to counter it, which is so difficult. I mean, I and in a way, my next book is really going to tackle a lot of this stuff. It's a, the, meta, the metaphor I use... Um, is that of the referee, let's say, in a football match where uh, the incentives now are for the referee to just call as many penalties as possible and the players to dive as much yeah. as possible. <laughs> uh, you also need to have some mechanism to, uh, to sort of call, call out diving and excessive faking. And at yeah. the same time, you need a mechanism for the referee to limit the amount of penalties they call, right? So that yeah. kind of counter force, countervailing force to penalizing uh, the limits, in a way. Uh, so you, you need penalties, but you also need limits on penalties. And we've yeah. developed this incredible machinery for, for calling penalties. We have no machinery for limiting the amount of penalties that are called. Yeah. And, and that is really what's missing. And, and I guess people are kind of groping towards that. Um, but how you do that in the face of these accusations and taboos. And what's interesting is a lot of, in the survey work, a lot of quite intelligent people still fall for these uh, sacred value arguments. This is where I look to some of the minority uh, heterodox scholars, you know, Tarjinder you had on, but in the U.S., Colvin Hughes and, and uh, people like John McWhorter, and a lot of these people are saying, you know, it's actually really insulting <laughs> to, yes. for people to sort of approach us like little children and not wanting to offend and not, not you know, thinking that we're all fragile and we can't take any information like African-Americans having somewhat higher crime rates, and maybe that's possibly linked to not just oppression, but perhaps to cultural legacies, which may yeah. have their origin in racism, but actually are now independent of racism. But, you know, that's that's sort of 
conversation that they're pushing, I think is is hugely important in trying to right the ship, if you like. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of that is just, is do people have fallen for a redefinition of things which are most, almost everyone would agree bad, like racism, but a lot of people who haven't really spent ages studying exactly what's going on haven't realised that the term racism is being applied to things which it doesn't actually make sense just on a definite, on a definitional sense to apply it to by people who are ideologically committed to that left modernist worldview. So it's like discussing how best to deal with really high crime rates, which might be really badly screwing over, for example, people in the African-American community right. in America. That's like, as in putting aside the issue of whether there might be racism as well, which definitely could be something which is worth paying attention to, just trying to address the other reasons which might give rise to that. If the left modernists are defining that approach or a desire to look into those issues as extremely racist, as racist as actually being racist towards someone on the basis right. of skin colour. That is not, I don't think, I think large, a large percentage of people from those ethnic minority backgrounds would actually take issue with that as it's almost a kind of bigoted or it's the bigotry of low expectations. Like, imagine the masses. Yeah, that's right. And it's like, yeah. I'm, I don't know, I just, I just have a feeling that like I'm from an ethnic, I'm Jewish, I'm from like a minority yeah. background. Same background here. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, I just, I, I, just have a, I just have a weird feeling about that way of approaching these issues because they're politicizing identities basically to p- protect their particular ideological worldview, which I just think is a strange thing to be doing. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's okay to, be, to have an identity and to, to have politics around defending your interests. I, I think that's not the problem. The problem is um, when you want to, I, I think in order for a society to work, you always have to go for less than your 100% group interest and actually be willing to, to make some sacrifices for the larger whole. But also there are different types of identity. So I don't, the conservative critique of identity politics is sometimes, you know, identity politics is just awful. Well, I don't think that's right. I think the thing is there's different kinds of identity politics. There could be like a moderate form, what Jonathan Haidt calls common humanity form of identity politics, where you're proud of the, the positive things that in your tradition, uh, but you don't, it's not a common enemy form of identity where I am black because I dis, I hate white people and they've done awful things to me. And it's all about you know, that, that sort of, which is really, it's not, the actual ethnic minorities themselves are really not about that, but I think that the the left modernists, the white progressives, are often trying to push that yeah. onto the minority groups to say, no, you guys should be really angry and more annoyed and more radical and, and, and more common enemy in your approach and not so common humanity in your approach. And, and, yeah. and whereas on the when it comes to sort of ethnic majority groups, the idea is, well, no, you can't even have a common humanity form of identity, you you must just repent. So this this is sort of the what we're dealing with with the with the fringe of these um, progressive activists. And I don't, you know, until yeah. we find a way of neutralizing that, I think we're going to be in trouble. So I was going to say, yeah. So so basically, as a, one of the final points, but so yeah, yeah, we're both Jewish. But as I'll say, so from my speaking from my experience of this, um, something which really really has annoyed me is the way in which basically anti-Semitism. Accusations of anti-Semitism have been used against the right by people who aren't willing to talk about anti-Semitism where it exists and it's not on the right. And that's a perfect example of how 
I am obviously, as a Jewish person, not in favour of there being anti-Semitism, but I don't think that me not subscribing to that particular left view of what anti-Semitism is, which basically it only exists on the right, and when it exists, it's um, we must be united against the right because that's where it's coming from, is the way to go about it because that seems like you're almost politicising uh, Judaism and the fact that I'm Jewish and anti-Semitism just to make a left-wing point. Because at the moment, for example, if you look in France, there are huge problems with anti-Semitism and across Europe, n- large some of it is on the right, which is obviously terrible, but also some of it comes from different communities. For example, there's like an Islamist form right. of anti-Semitism, which has made those people move out of France. And that's a major concern for a lot of Jews. And the left modernists have basically, they've sort of changed their tack recently, but for years they were saying, oh my God, there's an uptick in anti-Semitism in France. This is awful. It proves that we must be scared of the rights. And actually that's the the dishonest logical leap which they're making. And they're using, they're claiming to care about anti-Semitism to to bash the right. And that's kind of the point I make throughout. It's like, you're claiming to care about racism, which is good because I don't, I hate racism. So it's good to care about racism. But what you're doing actually isn't trying to fight racism necessarily. You're trying to fight a particular form of ideology, which you oppose on the right, rather than just kind of general racism. And so it's the politicization of those ethnicities and stuff to suit yeah. a left-wing purpose. And I find that really, really irritating, especially <laughs> just as if they're using it, they're using Judaism to do it and just they'll use it with anyone they can. And then when a, when a minority person comes out and says something which is right-wing or isn't of a left-modernist perspective, they then use old-fashioned racist language sometimes to refer to those people. Right. And it's just, yeah. it's so hypocritical. It's so yeah, obvious. Yeah, but this, this is why I, I agree with you. And this is why I think people who, who just say, oh, this is identity politics and assume that that's driven by minority identities. I think that's actually not the right analysis. I think your level of analysis is right, which is that, it's the ideology which uses. So the ideology is the dog, and the different identities are the tail. Yeah. Uh, and, and it actually weaponizes and uses these identities. And so, for example, anti-Semitism is is a stick to beat the right. Now, of course, that can that can be used by the right to beat the left. And we yeah, yeah, have, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think actually in a problematic way because I actually think that the the uh, the reflex should be one of giving the other person you know, yeah. of charity. Assume their motives are better than they really are, and then I think we'll be better off rather than assuming the worst. Yeah. The current motive, is, the current way this is operationalized is um, you're a racist unless you can prove otherwise. So you're guilty until you can prove yourself innocent, right? Yeah. Which is the reverse of the way it should be. But uh, the left will often create, uh, or any ideology, will create an idealized version of a group that is one of its chosen peoples. So for example, the proletarian, the, 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 you know, communism had this very idealized conception of the proletariat, but actual working class culture repulsed it. And, yeah. and similarly with uh, the left modernists, uh, you know, actual really existing African-American ethnicity, which is really tied to, you know, the AME Zion church and the blues and these different musical forms. And, you know, the actual richness and the texture of the culture is not really what it appeals to it. What, what appeals is this are these abstract categories like people of color, you know, which have no real meaning, but yeah. are kind of useful as a sort of uh, way as a stick for the ideology. And so, yeah. yeah, the ideology is constructing these abstract categories from above and and, and investing them with some sort of significance, which yeah. doesn't, in many cases, correspond to the lived reality of these groups themselves. 
Yeah, oh, that's a really great point. Maybe we should end there because I know we've okay. been going for over an hour now. But yeah, thanks a lot for coming on the show. It's really interesting. Great, thanks, Max. Okay, Take nice care. to meet you. Stay Bye. safe. <laughs>